Well, welcome to Sovereign Grace Church. My name is Chad. I'm the senior pastor. Glad you're here. With that said, if you will, turn with me to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. And we'll be picking up where we left off. If you remember, when we left off in November, we had finished what most scholars would refer to as the prologue to Genesis. The prologue, which is 1, 1 through 2, 3. We'd walked through that account of the six days of creation and the seventh day in which God rested. And now, this morning, we sort of pick up in the main body of the text of Genesis. So if if we just looked at the prologue already, now we're picking up where the main body of the story begins. So if you will, look with me at Genesis 2, 4. Genesis 2, 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground And breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Let me pray. Father, we ask that you would bless your word, that we would receive it as what it is, the word of the Lord. That your spirit would be at work so that we would hear what the spirit is saying to the churches. That we would hear about your good creation, your kindness to us in it. Really your fatherly care in creating us and and all things. And that we would have much joy in response. Sufficiently humble our minds to hear your words, to tremble at your word, and to exalt you as our God. In Jesus' name, amen. Just as I began to pray, somebody's Bible app started reading the Bible to them. That's the downside of reading your Bible in the service on your phone. It happened to me a couple weeks ago when one of the other guys was preaching. My Bible app started reading to me. All right. I want to jump into this chapter by sort of introducing some notions on Darwinian evolution. And as I do, I'm mindful of the fact that I'm both trying to be simple So the average person who's not up to date on things like the philosophy of science or even the science of evolution, so they can grasp what I'm saying. And at the same time, I'm trying not to be so simple that Tim Plett isn't looking at me saying, what a dummy. He's got it all wrong. So I'm trying to find that middle ground between what real scientists would say about this and and saying it in such a way that the average person can get their mind around it. Darwinian evolution together with its philosophical commitments to materialism, materialism being the idea that there is only all there is, not materialism like you're materialistic, you like to buy things, right? 
But materialism being there is only matter, motion, and modification. That's all there is. All there is is matter, motion, and modification. That's one philosophical commitment of Darwinian evolution. The other is naturalism. Naturalism being that we can only truly know what we can observe in nature. That's all we can really know is what we can observe in nature. And that likely what we observe in nature is all that there is. Now, not all naturalists deny there's something beyond nature, but it's a probability that all that we observe in nature is all there is. Darwinian evolution, together with those philosophical commitments, have become orthodoxy in much of the public imagination and certainly have become orthodoxy in the public institutions. Frankly, my own children were taught those commitments at their private Christian school. I read those commitments in their science textbooks and in their history textbooks. Yes, I'm the dad who looks at the textbooks. Now, I don't want you to understand me. I don't object to my children learning about Darwinian evolution as a theory that is widely held. I mean, they need to be aware of what most of the people around them believe. Certainly what those in power believe. I don't even object to them being taught that one of the basic tenets of evolution is true. Now you're going to say, oh no, Chad's saying evolution is true. One of the basic tenets of evolution is true. I want to explain that. Inasmuch as evolution holds the basic tenet of development, of development, I don't think any Christians object to that. We can see development all around us in the things that God has made. Look at me, and then look at Jason. Development. I'm clearly a superior form of man. (laughs) Not really. This idea of development is not original to Darwin. It's an ancient idea. It's an ancient idea. We can find it in a thinker like Aristotle. It is true in the things that have been made that there is development from potentiality to actuality. A human baby at conception is a potential adult human being. But not an actual adult human being. You understand that? Now, I don't want you to misunderstand me here. The baby in its embryonic stage of development does not, being in that stage, does not rob the baby of its essential humanity. That's not what we're saying. The baby does not develop from something not human to something human. And the church has always opposed abortion and infanticide on those grounds. That's a human being in a stage of development. It's not developing from something less human to something human. It's developing from something embryonic or immature to something mature, but in essence, that's a human being. We've opposed euthanasia on these same grounds. The elderly and the chronically ill are not less human either. Somehow, we think if someone hits a stage of development or maybe regression in which they are now not useful to us, that we ought to euthanize them. Now, we can see this idea of development in the text of Genesis. We can see that in the text of Genesis. Look at Genesis chapter 1 and verse 11. 
Genesis chapter 1 and verse 11. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruits, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. So there is a development. The earth can sprout vegetation. There can be seed in fruit-bearing trees that then sprout more trees. Look at verse 20 of Genesis 1. And God said, Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So there's a, a development in the waters of living creatures. Look at now verse 24. And God said, Let the earth bring forth Living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and it was so. By the way, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth speaks to domesticated animals, wild animals, and small insects, reptiles, things like that. If you will, this is how they classified the animal kingdom, those three categories. The Lord built into the creation the ability to sprout forth plants, trees, and grass. We see it all the time. To reproduce fish, birds, and animals. So inasmuch as evolution is spoken of in the sense of development, we do not object to it. We don't object to it. We do, however, reject the notion that this happens merely by natural laws that govern a merely material creation. We do object to the notion that all creatures developed as simple-celled organisms and they evolved into more complex organisms. So all creatures move from simple-celled organisms to more complex organisms. We object to that. You did not evolve from an amoeba. It wasn't amoeba, amoeba, then some sort of fish, an amphibian, and then land animal, and then monkey, and then somewhere along the line came you. The Bible is clear that the things that are came to be directly by God's creative word according to their kinds. According to their kinds. Look at Genesis 1.11 again. And God said that the earth spout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, and which is their seed, each according to its kind. Look at verse 12. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants, yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. Verse 20 again. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures, and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm, what? According to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. Verse 24, and God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. Verse 25, and God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. You think that Moses is being emphatic enough? Now the things that are do continue to develop in accord with their kinds in accord with their kinds, because of God's sustaining work. Because of God's sustaining 
work. Now, there are a number of concerns with Darwin's theory of evolution we could mention. But as we walk through Genesis 2 through 3, chapters 2 and 3, we will look at actually several commitments of Darwinian evolution that have become endemic in our society. The thing we're hoping that COVID becomes endemic in our society. Commitments which the Lord will not tolerate. And the reason I'm going to come after this is not because I want to preach Genesis 2 and 3 merely as a polemic against what our culture presently holds, but because Genesis 2 and 3, Moses is actually writing a polemic against the ancient Near Eastern gods, against the Egyptian gods, and we're not those who subscribe to the ancient Near Eastern or Egyptian gods, so I want to use the same polemic against our own beliefs. So this morning we're going to take on the first commitment of Darwinian evolution that God's word overthrows. Here it is. What is that commitment? This is what it is. That the creation of man happened, now some people aren't going to like this next part, that the creation of man happened by some atheistic cause of purely material and natural processes rather than as the effect of God's direct creative act. That the creation of man happened by some atheistic cause of purely material and natural processes rather than as the effect of God's direct creative act. Naturalism and materialism are the philosophical commitments of atheists. Now, I want to be clear because some of my friends are going to come up right after and bring this up. Charles Darwin did in fact deny being an atheist. He actually called himself an agnostic. In that sense, he wasn't a pure materialist. He was some sort of naturalist. But in the end, that does not save his theory from atheism. You can argue that you do not deny the existence of God. You can state that. You can confess that. But the moment you believe that the only truths you can know are truths about the physical universe that can be observed naturally with your own sense perception, even if you embrace the notion that you can learn some theological or metaphysical truth from the Bible, but only from your Bible, at that moment, you're committed to atheism and you're denying the word of God. Now, you don't even know how many of my friends in theological circles I just called atheists. But it's a lot. Because we as a culture have bought this notion that the only way we can know anything true that is metaphysical Things like the immortal soul or heaven, etc., etc. Only way we can know those truths is from Scripture. And the only way, now, some of them we can only know through Scripture, like the Trinity or what have you. But the only way we can know those truths is from Scripture. But we can't know truths about God from observing nature. We can't know those. What I'm saying is the moment you make that divide, you've committed yourself to atheism. The moment you say you can only know any metaphysical truth, any truth about God from Scripture, you have committed yourself to atheism. That all you can know from observation is natural things, material things. We've done that in our society for centuries now, and as a result, there's the truth that we know from science and observation, and then there's that faith, that weird kind of religious stuff you all hold to in places like this where we're gathered. 
that's not really true. That's just a nice thing that you do to maybe psychological explanation to soothe your soul in some way. The Bible never teaches us, please hear this, the Bible never teaches us that the only truths we can know by observing the things that are, are naturalistic truths. The Bible never teaches us that. The Bible teaches us, or physical truths, the Bible teaches us that God has revealed himself in the things that have been made, and we can know truths about him from the things that have been made. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. Now catch this part. There is no speech. In other words, as the heavens speak of God, there is no speech, nor are there words, whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. On what basis does Paul say we're condemned? Not you received the special revelation of God in the Bible and you rejected it. That's why you're condemned. On what basis does Paul say we're condemned? For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God, listen, is plain to them. Because God has shown it to them. Where? Where has he shown it to us? For his invisible attributes. Namely, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. They are without excuse. Christianity is fundamentally opposed to the naturalistic and materialistic commitments of Darwinian evolutionary thought. Fundamentally. The Bible teaches us clearly that God created all things and that he did so directly, purposefully, and lovingly. Our fundamental commitment is that God is. God is. And that all things that came to be came to be as a result of his wise, powerful, and good word, and that we can know those things by observing them. We can know him, even to to a degree, by observing those things. Now, we can't know him savingly by observing nature, but we can know that he is, and that he has a law, and that those who violate his law deserve death. Paul tells us all of that in Romans 1, 18 through 32. God is And all things that came to be, came to be as a result of his wise, powerful, and good word. We hear this ring out at the very beginning of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now we already consider God's creation of all things in the space of six days, followed by his rest on the seventh day as we walked through Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3. As we walked through the prologue. So as we begin Genesis 2, 4, we're moving on from the prologue. And now we're beginning a section of Genesis that focuses us on the first events of human history. We might call it the primeval history. And as we look at the first events of human history, Moses is, if you will, sort of backing us up to day six. So in an effort to look with Moses at the first events of human history, we're going to consider two major points today. One, we're going to look at a general orientation. I want you to a general orientation 
to the family history of the heavens and the earth. That sounds strange, the family history of the heavens and the earth. We're going to look at a general orientation of the family history of the heavens and the earth. And then second, where we're going to particularly focus on God's fatherly care in the creation of all things. We're particularly focus on God's fatherly care in the creation of all things. So let's, let's look first at a general orientation. A general orientation to the family history of the heavens and the earth. Look at Genesis 2.4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now this refrain, these are the generations, actually divides Genesis, that phrase, these are the generations, toledot. Last time I said it, Jay said, you sound like a hick. Say it properly. So I'm getting a little closer. Jace will probably still criticize my use of the word. But he knows Hebrew better than I But that these are the generations of, these are the generations of, is a refrain ten times in the book of Genesis. And it really marks Genesis out in ten sections. Sections that tell you about the offspring and the family history and the deeds of each man named. So look at Genesis 5.1, for example, because you'll look at the second section starting. Genesis 5.1, you'll see how the second section starts. This is the book of the generations of Adam. You can keep going to Genesis 6-9. These are the generations of Noah. You can keep doing this. Go to chapter 10, verse 1. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Go to chapter 11, verse 10. These are the generations of Shem. If you remember, Abraham is going to come from Shem's line. And on we go. There are, Genesis is really divided into these, divided is too strong a word, is organized in these ten sections around the, these are the generations of. These are the generations of. And as we walk through all of these family histories, that's what I'm going to call them, we're watching the genealogies of two seeds or two family lines. And we're watching what their family lines do. So I I want you to hear this. We're not just hearing about the birth order. You know, Adam fathered Seth, and Seth fathered, and so on. We're not just hearing that genealogy. We're actually seeing the story of what their family did. So we're both hearing their genealogy, and then we're hearing their family history. Here's what your family members did. So in Genesis 2, 4, if you look there, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day the Lord God made the heavens and the earth. That begins a section that carries us all the way to the end of Genesis chapter 4. And then Genesis chapter 5 starts the book of the generations of Adam. But we see not only the creation of Adam and Eve or Cain and Abel in this section, but we also see what Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel do. We see their actions in history. We hear their stories. And we continue to see this throughout Genesis as we hear the announcement of each of these are the generations of. That's why, by the way, we name it the book of Genesis. Now, whether that genealogy of Seth and what his family does, or Noah and what his family does, or Abraham and what his family does, whether that's a genealogy of those things, that's what we're learning about after the announcement. 
Here's the genealogy of, or the family history of, Seth. And here's what his family did. Here's the genealogy or the family history of Noah. And here's what his family did. Here's the genealogy or the history of Abraham. And here's what his family did. You guys follow that? Here is the, the, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth. And here's what our first family did. Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, so on. Genesis 2-4 then is a transition from the prologue or the origin story of the heavens and the earth to the history of the heavens and the earth that goes from Genesis 2-4 through 4-26. So I want to look at four details in Genesis 2-4 that help us grasp that. Now the first two details I want to look at really are similarities the prologue that are meant to tie the two stories or the prologue together with this so that this acts as a real transition. So there are two similarities. First, we are provided with an inclusio. Now, what's an inclusio? It's like a bracket so that you say this verse and this verse sort of bracket everything in between. So look at Genesis 2-4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth. Now, what is that bracket with? Genesis 1-1 In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So these two passages are tied together. Second, we see two words in Genesis 2-4 that tie us to Genesis 1 as well. Look at these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. That word is used throughout Genesis 1 of the creation. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, that word made is also used to tie us to the way in which God created, formed, and filled the heavens and the earth. It's a transition, so it ties us back to what came before and is also pushing us forward to something new. So let's look at two distinctions or differences that begin the transition. First one, notice this ordering of the heavens and the earth. Two, four again. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. Now note this, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. You see the reversal of the order of heavens and earth, to earth and heavens. The purpose of that reversal is to focus us upon the earth and really what's happening on the earth. Second, we know this is a family history because of the use of this Hebrew term that we translate these are the generations of and how it's used throughout Genesis as a family history. But here's the question that comes up. How is a family history of the earth and the heavens different from the origin story of the heavens and the earth. How is it different? Well, the family history focuses on what the family did, whereas the prologue just focused on how the family came to be. Every time we see these are the generations of, we're being told about their genealogy and the narrative of what they did. And we see that in 2.5 through 4.26. We see what? We see three parts of primeval history that are being told there. The story of the creation of Adam and Eve in the garden and what God commanded them to do and how God provided for them in chapter 2, verses 5 through 24. And then we hear the story of the temptation and the fall of Adam and Eve to sin and God's cursing and God's making the promise of the gospel all through chapter 3. And then in chapter 4, we hear the story of how righteous Abel is murdered by wicked Cain and then the development of Cain's wicked family into the city of man. And then we hear at the very end of that, the birth of Seth, continuing the godly line that we're looking for. 
So that's your general orientation. We're picking up a family history of the earth and the heavens with a particular focus on what the first man and woman and their first sons did. Let's look at a particular focus, though, on God's fatherly care. That's sort of the details of this section of Genesis laid out for you. Let me get to a particular focus, though, on God's fatherly care. As we look at the verses here from verses 5 through 24, we won't go through every one of them. I'll just pick some up as we go through. But as we look at them, I want us to contemplate the fatherly care, the intimacy, the loving kindness with which God created us, because that's being focused on here. The focus on the history of the heavens and the earth is not a focus on a purposeless or godless creation story. It's not even a deistic kind of story where God winds up the heavens and the earth and sits back and watches them happen. It's a story in which God is intimately involved as a father Loving his creation. And we see really three major emphases that pick up this notion. The first one is that God is the primary actor in the history of creation. It's actually fascinating as you read Genesis 2, as we walk through. You see God being the primary actor. What I mean by that, I don't mean he's the only character in Genesis 2. I mean he's the primary one who is the subject of all the verbs. In other words, he's the one doing the action of the verbs. Almost entirely. Adam, Eve, the animals, the earth, the vegetation, they're all largely passive. These things are happening to them or being done to them. God is the active agent in creation. Look at the subjects and the verbs in Genesis 2-7. Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground. And look at the next phrase. And breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Look at verse 8. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden. Next phrase. And there he put the man whom he had formed. Verse 9. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. Verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man saying. Verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good. So here he's acting. Verse 19. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Over and over and over again, it is God acting for us. He's acting for us. There's a kind of care that Moses is emphasizing here. Not we're doing anything. Not it's happening by chance. It's the Lord God intentionally, intimately acting on behalf of his people. Now, I'll drive that home even further, the second emphasis. Not only do we see the Lord God being the one who's active, we receive an additional name for God that emphasizes his fatherly care and creation. He receives additional name. What do I mean by that? 
Throughout Genesis 1 through 2, 3, and you'll find this interesting. Throughout Genesis 1 through 2, 3, he's called Elohim. 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 From 2, 4 through the end of chapter 3, with the exception of the little section in Genesis 3, 1 through 6, when the serpent and Eve are talking, which is interesting all by itself, and I'll get there in Genesis 3. But through, from 2, 4, all the way through the end of chapter 3, he is Yahweh Elohim, Yahweh Elohim, Yahweh Elohim, 20 times. And then after chapter 3, he's never Yahweh Elohim again, except one other time in the entire first five books of Moses. And there's an emphasis happening here. There's a combining of two names for God. If Elohim largely speaks to God as the majestic creator, then what does Yahweh mean? Well, the 18th century Baptist theologian John Gill, I think, gets this right when he says, Yahweh is expressive. That name is expressive of his being and perfections, particularly his eternity and immutability being the everlasting and unchangeable I am, which is and was and is to come. And what catches the reader's attention is that in Genesis 2-4 through Genesis 3-26, you're hearing that combined phrase, the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, over and over and over again. So, but here's the question that pops up. Why does Moses use this combined name here and not use it everywhere else? What is Moses trying to tell us? He didn't just like say, yeah, you, you know, like you do sometimes when you're writing a paper where you go, I've used that word too many times. I need to use a different word. Let me look through this thesaurus and find a different one. That's not what Moses is doing here. There's, a, there's an intentionality here. Why? What is the Holy Spirit wanting Christ's people to understand? Well, to answer that, we need to look at when Moses first heard God refer to himself as Yahweh. So, I want you to turn to Exodus 3. Exodus 3. And if you remember the story, I'll try to catch you up. Israel, God's people, was under slavery to Egypt. And they had been crying out to God for redemption. They had been crying out for God to redeem them from Egypt. Now look at Exodus chapter 3 and verse 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see... God called him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. Let me stop there for a minute. As God spoke to Moses... He tells Moses, I'm the God who covenanted with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, your fathers. I'm the God who promised Abraham, to Abraham and to his offspring, 
that I would be their God and they would be my people. I'm the God who called Abraham my friend. God has ascribed a kind of covenantal intimacy to himself here. I covenanted with your people. I care for them. I love them. I've set my loving kindness upon them. I'm that God. Moses knows that in the scene where God covenants with Abraham in Genesis 17, he calls himself God Almighty. And Abraham rightly is afraid of his holiness. But then God goes on to tell Moses that he's heard their cries and that he would deliver Israel from Egypt and lead them to the land that he promised Abraham. And he tells Moses, I'm going to send you to redeem Israel. And Moses asks a question. So look at Exodus 3 and verse 11. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, but I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am, Yahweh, has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I'm to be remembered throughout all generations. See, God is not only the God who covenanted intimately with them, he is the only God who is. The God to whom belongs all perfections. The God who is eternal, immutable. The one who was and is and is to come. God Almighty. That's who he is. Yahweh is the only God. He is the creator and sustainer of all things. And he alone is the redeemer of his people. That's what God drives at in Exodus 6. All other gods are false. They're nothing. And they made nothing. In fact, those gods were themselves made by human imaginations and human hands. The Egyptian gods, they're just limited tribal deities. They were really no gods at all. But that was not true of Israel's God. The God who covenanted with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God who was delivering Israel out of Egypt, he is, he is, and there is no other. That's why Yahweh Elohim is used in Exodus 9.30 in the plague of hail. You don't have to turn there. Just listen to what Moses says to Pharaoh. Moses said to him, this is in the plague of hail. Moses said to him, as soon as I have gone out of the city, I will stretch out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease and there will be no more hail so that you may know that the earth is Yahweh's. This is the only other time you're going to hear the Lord God, together in all of the Pentateuch. But as for you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear Yahweh Elohim. The God who created all things and to whom all things belong, he is the same God who is Israel's covenant Lord, the same God who is Israel's redeemer. 
And Moses is pointing this out. The God who covenanted with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who covenanted with you and redeemed you, that God who has intimate, loving, fatherly care for you, is the only God who is. He is the maker of heaven and earth. So in Genesis 2 through 3, Moses is telling us that Israel's God is God. He is the I am, the creator of all things, our covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. And this draws us into a more powerfully intimate accounting of God's creation of man. Creation's not here by accident. Rather, it's created by God who is the primary actor. Further, the creator does not just distantly wind things up and sit back with no care. Rather, he is the primary actor who's intimately involved with his creatures, even covenanting with us and redeeming us in the face of our sin. And that leads to the third emphasis that demonstrates God's fatherly care. Look at Genesis 2, Genesis 2, verse 5. Now, I'm going to come back to this passage next week and maybe the week after, but... I want you to hear what it says. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth, and there was no man to work the ground. And the mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Now catch this verse. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground. And breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being or a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. Now we're going to look at that in more depth next week. Particularly the nature of man next week. But for now I want you to focus on the fatherly care of God in this history. We're being told that God created both a man and a place for that man to live. Throughout Genesis 2, 5 through 24, we'll be told that God is creating meaningful work for man to do. Here's meaningful work for you to do. He's creating vegetation from which man might eat. He's creating animals over which man might exercise dominion. And he's creating a wife who would be a fit helper for man. What we're seeing is this beautiful story of a father who's creating all these good gifts who's creating this beneficially appointed home for the sake of man. This is no distant deity. This is also no story of accidental evolution of pre-existing material at the hands of naturalistic causes. There is a care and intimacy in the forming of man and breathing life into man. Look at Genesis 2-7 again. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. This language of he formed him is the language of a potter who takes mud or clay and forms or shapes something. You guys ever seen somebody with a potter's, on a potter's wheel? The care with which they're taking to form or shape that thing that they're creating? That's the language here in Genesis. Like a potter on the potter's wheel, he's carefully forming man, shaping him. There's a careful, intimate, purposeful forming being emphasized here. 
It's like what you hear from David in Psalm 139. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret. Intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, before there was yet one. Do you hear the intimacy of creation? Further, we read that God breathed the breath of life into Adam's nostrils. Notice that. And he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. Now I'll get into the issue of the soul some next week. But what we read is that God breathed the breath of life into Adam's nostrils. Meredith Klein, I think, rightly says that this language for God breathed is a manner of speaking of the fathering agency of the Spirit of God. His fathering agency as he gives life to man. Derek Kidner, an Old Testament scholar, picks up the same idea and says this breathing into Man's nostrils, listen to what he says, is warmly personal with face-to-face intimacy of a kiss and the significance that this was an act of giving as well as making and self-giving at that. And folks, this brings us to something we must meditate upon. At our first creation, we see the Father's divine breathing into Adam. And here, at the beginning of creation, we see the pattern that God so loved the world that he gave. And you might object, all right, that seems like a stretch. What's the connection there? Well, after Adam became a living being, what did Adam do? The first Adam do. He rebelled against God and sinned. And when we rebelled against God... He incurred death. He incurred spiritual and physical death for himself and for all his progeny. He was a living being who died and plunged us all into death with him. And the father promised in Genesis 3.15 to send his son, the seed of the woman, the second Adam, the Christ. The Christ would come and absorb the penalty of death for us on the cross. And then he would raise from the dead, conquering sin and death. So that while this old creation that we are all born into is subject to sin and death because the first living being died in sin, Jesus would begin a new creation of righteousness and life. And by the work of the Spirit through faith, his death would be our death. And his resurrection would be our resurrection. In the new creation, we see Jesus sent by the Father to do what? To breathe the spirit of resurrected life into us. Listen, Paul makes that connection. You don't need to look there, but just listen to what he says in 1 Corinthians 15, 45-49. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, 
became a living being when God breathed his spirit into his nostrils. The last Adam, that's Christ, became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural. In other words, Adam came before Christ, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. In other words, the man of dust returns to the dust because of sin. So also do all of us who are of the dust. We are born into the original creation and we return to the dust because of sin. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Christ is life in himself. He rose from the grave and so those who are in him rise with him. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we also shall bear the image of the man of heaven. Do you hear the good news, Sovereign Grace? God loved you in creation. God loved you in redemption. God loved you from all eternity. His love for you never began. You ever thought about that? His love for you never began. And his love for you will never end. The pattern of the Father's love for us is laid down here at the beginning of the story of Adam, who by God's divine inbreathing became a living being. And the story of the Father's love for us reaches its consummate glory in the sending of the Son, the second Adam, who divinely breathes into us the breath of of eternal, resurrected life. Let me pray. Father, we are thankful for your creation of us and for the new creation that we know in Christ. We are overwhelmed by your loving kindness toward us. There from the beginning continuing in the face of our sin. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. May we rejoice in who you are as our God and may it redound for your glory not only here, but throughout all the earth. Let us sing the praises of Christ, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.